20 years ago yesterday, I was sitting in geometry class. The principal came over the intercom and asked all of the classes to turn on the news because the first World Trade Tower was hit. I remember exactly what I was doing that day. I remember the emotions. I remember the silence of the room as we watched. I remember the shock, the disbelief. I remember wondering, what will this mean? I remember, most of all, how I felt. I didn't have anyone that I knew or family who died that day. But we knew people who did. I remember that. 9-11 will be something we never forget. There are tons of images that have stuck with us over the last 20 years. Their documentary after documentary has been made. I feel like I've watched them all. But there's one image that pulls me into grief. It's called the falling man. Photographer Richard Drew captured it. And you've seen it. It's a single person, head first, falling. He jumped. There was no hope. That's the picture that moves me to mourning when I think about 9-11. Because I can't help but think, what did he eat for breakfast? What were going to be his plans that night? Who was waiting on the other end of his last phone call? Did he get to say goodbye? Let's assume that he did. Who were those people who heard his goodbye? And who are they today? When you go down this road in your mind, it takes you in a million different directions. You think about all of the people who got out of the World Trade Towers, and then you think about all the people who got trapped, who were wounded, the first responders who gave their life to save another, the families on the airplanes. We now know that the youngest passenger of the planes that went down was two years old. Two. Unconscionable. Every 9-11 for the past 20 years, I have mourned that. For the past several years, I keep having this recurring question. What are we to do with our losses? Since 9-11, we've had many more losses. Losses to gun violence, racial violence, wars, hurricanes, forest fires, earthquakes. We've completely moved on from Haiti because of the severity of Afghanistan. There's so much brokenness and pain that exists simultaneously. What are we to do with our losses? My favorite theologian, Henry Nouwen, answers this. We must mourn. We cannot talk or act these feelings away, but we can shed tears over them, allowing ourselves to grieve deeply. To grieve is to allow our losses to tear apart our feelings of security and safety and lead us to the painful truth of our brokenness. If that's what mourning does, 
It tears apart feelings of security and safety and leads us to the painful truth of our brokenness, then I am mourning 9-11 because it definitely does that for me. And I'm sure it does you too. Grief makes us experience the abyss of our own lives in which nothing is settled, nothing is clear, nothing is obvious, everything is constantly shifting and changing. And that's true for 9-11 and for grief. Not just communal, corporate grief, but personal ones too. Every one of us has and deals with the death of loved ones. You might be dealing with a diagnosis on your own health or waiting to get a diagnosis about your health. We are all mourning something. But as Nowen reminds us, it's in the midst of all of the pain that there is this strange, shocking, yet very surprising voice. And it's the voice of the one who says, Blessed are you who mourn, for you will be comforted. That's the unexpected news. That hidden is a blessing in our grief. I mean, Jesus isn't saying those who comfort are blessed. He's saying those who mourn are blessed. Somehow in the midst of our own tears, a gift is hidden a pearl is buried in the field of our own soul and it gets unearthed and the kingdom of God comes to us in our pain. In Matthew 5, Jesus is talking to a mountainside of broken, hurt people. We mentioned this context last week. Who was present at the Sermon on the Mount and the oppressiveness that they experienced from Rome? And I know that you get that context. Caesar is Lord, everything is terribly oppressive, and everything funnels through Rome. But there is another context that I need you to hold when we study the Beatitudes. And this may be something you've never considered before, so just hang with me for a few minutes. It might, it might blow your mind. There is something in biblical studies, really literary studies across the board, that we call the implied reader or the narrate. It's the person that the piece of literature assumes is reading the literature. And that's not us. The writer of Matthew did not intend for us to be reading it 2,000 years later. A lot of times, Scripture, especially the Gospels, were written well after the events being told happened decades even so the implied readers are the people when the letter of the gospels is first written and so we have to ask the question well what do we know about them well we know some things this is the implied reader of the gospel of matthew the best we can tell is that this was a community in syria in the city of antioch around the year 80. Now, I will pause here and say, this Matthew text is not new source material. It's not like decades went by and nobody talked about Jesus and then finally somebody wrote about Jesus. This story, these beatitudes were passed from generation to generation orally. 
until year 80 when someone decided to write it down. All right, so here's what we know about that group. They lived in Antioch in Syria around the year 80. If this community would have been alive in year 80, that means they experienced the destruction of Jerusalem and their temple 10 years prior in year 70. And now they are living as refugees in a completely different country 10 years later. And this is what we know, and this may be new to you, but this is what we know about that group, and this gets so good. Jerusalem was destroyed 40 years after Jesus died. It was destroyed by a military leader, the son of the emperor that we know as Titus. And we have some records about what Titus did. For instance, his father, the current emperor at the time, Vespasian, he co-opted the Jewish temple tax. He forced the refugees in Syria to pay the emperor what they were paying for Yahweh's temple. They gave it to the, to the emperor so he could build a new temple for the, for the god Jupiter. Vespasian used the Jewish temple tax money to fund the rebuilding of the Roman temple for Jupiter in Antioch. Who's Jupiter? He's one of the Roman deities. To make matters worse, Emperor Vespasian then issued new Judea Capta coins for the Jewish refugees to remind them every single time they buy, sell, and trade goods that the money they are using emblazoned across the coins is a memory to the moment their temple was destroyed by Rome. So the Jews had their city destroyed. They were displaced into a foreign country that was occupied by their oppressors. Then they were taxed for it, and so they had to fund the rebuilding of a temple for someone else's God. That money was then emblazoned across it a memory, an image of all that they had ever lost. This is what the Roman Empire culture does. It uses military power, political control, economic exploitation, religious sanctions, spin, and propaganda to preserve the interests of the ruling 3% at the expense of the 97% poor. It makes you wonder what these Jewish refugees hear when they read the words, Blessed are you who mourn, for you will be comforted. What a balm this must have been to their souls. Now go back to the actual story. Imagine the senior adult sitting a few rows back on the hillside with Jesus. He's listening to Jesus wax poetic. Three years ago, he lost his wife. He can't work. Disease has racked his body. The government won't help. The religious leaders tell him he's too sinful to cure. He lives every day as if it's his last. Think about what he hears from Jesus. Blessed are you, sir, who mourn, for you will be comforted. These are broken, hurt people experiencing the abyss of their own lives. And they're hearing Jesus say, Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. 
So for Jesus to offer to the universe that these are the people that the kingdom of God cares for, it's revolutionary. It's game-changing at every level for every generation that reads it, including ours. Jesus is attacking the very foundation for what an empire is built for. He's coming on the scene with a completely different agenda. A completely new kingdom is at hand. And he opens with, blessed are the down and out, and blessed are those who grieve. Blessed are those who have burdens and baggage. The kingdom of God is for you and with you. And you will be comforted in this life and the next. St. Francis used to say, to truly understand the Beatitudes, you have to stand on your head. It's a clever way of reminding us that Jesus is turning the world upside down. And it's no wonder the government hates him and kills him for it. And that's what makes the Beatitudes so relevant and important for us today. Because 2,000 years later, they still turn everything on its head. Because what we're hearing today from the gospel is we don't have to be perfect to experience God. We don't have to be flawless and pain-free. The God of the universe built a new kingdom, inaugurated it, and set it loose in the world with us in mind. For those who mourn, they will be comforted. I mean, this is good news for anyone who carries brokenness and pain, which is all of us. Every American remembering 9-11, Every global citizen feeling the weight and pain of brokenness of the world. The kingdom of God is for us. Designed for us. It's coming to us not to judge with wrath or with rules, but with comfort. What a balm this is for our soul. So as I continue to reflect on the endless hypotheticals, to the falling man 20 years ago and what his family and friends and communities have gone through. I think about the children on the planes and the families who suffered and the phone calls made from those planes. I can't help but to hear the Spirit saying to them, blessed are you who mourn, for you will be comforted. To all the first responders and their families, Blessed are you who mourn, for you will be comforted. To a country that still feels the weight of such an attack, blessed are you who mourn, for you will be comforted. To the Afghanistan refugees who had nothing to do with Al-Qaeda but still have been thrust into a war that brings hardship and hate, they hear from God, blessed are you who mourn, for you will be comforted. This is the promise of God. Blessed are you who mourn, for you will be comforted. My kingdom is made for you. It's powerful, isn't it? So my advice to you would be, let yourself grieve. Mourn what needs to be mourned. Feel your feelings. As Nowen reminds us, and it's in the midst of all of this pain that there is a strange, shocking, 
yet surprising voice. And it's the voice of the one who says, Blessed are those who mourn, for you shall be comforted. That's the unexpected news of the gospel. There is a blessing hidden in your grief. Jesus is not saying those who comfort those who mourn will be blessed. He's saying those who mourn will be comforted. Somehow in the midst of our tears, there is a gift that is hidden. A pearl that is buried in the field of our soul gets unearthed. And the kingdom of God comes to us in the midst of our pain. And we hear the spirit of the living God whispering into our soul, Blessed are you who mourn. You will be comforted by God.